Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. Because we're all here to know God and make Him known. And we do all of these things to grow in our relationship with our God and to give one another and the world around us opportunity to know Him better through His Word and our witness. So we are going to continue today in that by looking into Revelation once more. And once again, I told you this will be a few weeks, a months. Uh, if, if this tracks out the way I've been looking at it, we could be in Revelation all the way to August. Um, unless I just shorten it up and say, I don't know, just read it and it's okay. Um, you know, because some of Revelation's just like that. I don't get it, you won't get it, let's just go. Uh, but this is some really good stuff today. Revelation chapter 2, understanding that Revelation was given to us not to be scary, not to, uh, to give us something to compare against the news and you know, wonder about the end times and try and pick out who the Antichrist is. Because in my lifetime, it's been Gorbachev, it's been Reagan, it's been uh, well, any number of people, right? You do the math. And so... I'm sure Elon Musk is the Antichrist for somebody now. And, you know, it's just, it's not meant for that. What is Revelation meant for? What was it written for? Revelation 1-3 tells us it is meant to be a blessing for all those who will read it aloud, hear it, and obey it. And that word blessing is not the, 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 the old school kind of <laughs> blessing, but it is instead a state of peace and happiness and fulfillment and contentment. And so we should read Revelation with a heart to being lifted up and filled up by its truth, not scared of it. So today we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles or your Bible app, go ahead and get stuff opened up. And in Revelation chapter 2, we begin... What is the, what are the, the letters to the seven churches? Now, if we look back really quickly in, uh, chapter one, uh, John was told by Jesus to, uh, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, uh, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So we have these letters to seven churches that Jesus gives to John to send to the churches. And it's contained in this whole book of Revelation. Now, when we read letters to churches elsewhere in Scripture, like... Uh, well, first and second Corinthians and Romans and Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians. And we even read first and second Timothy and Titus. We read those letters understanding that they were written to specific churches and specific individuals with a specific purpose in mind. And it wasn't that the letters written to them were for someday, but the letters written to them were for them in the moment that they were in and they applied to that church right then and there. They applied to that person right then and there. And so as we read these seven letters, we shouldn't be reading them through the lens of, well, someday these will be true. Maybe, you know, the day that Jesus comes back, then we need to start applying these. But rather they were true in 95, in AD 95, when these letters were originally penned, and they're true today. And they were relevant to these early churches. In other words, these aren't just hidden prophecies for the future, but they had impact on the life of the church in the very day that they received the letter. 
Now, these seven churches are all located in Asia, the, the province of Asia. Now, you might, if you studied well in school, realize that's not all of Asia. Uh, the, wait a minute. Asia's much bigger than that. Yes, this is actually the Roman province or state of Asia. And so when we, we see this, this is actually not even all of Turkey today. And um, this, this state of Asia in the Roman Empire is where all seven of these churches are. But there are also more churches in this state. Other churches that we actually have letters to. The church in Colossae was here in Asia. Uh, so this isn't an exhaustive list of all the churches in Christendom in AD 95. This is instead a letter written to these seven specific churches. And we're not sure why, whether it was the fact that John had a relationship with them that was personal and they knew him. Or if it's just this is... These are seven churches that are representative of the greater church body and its life. But regardless, we have these seven letters sent to these seven churches. And if we were to go to each city in sequence, we would start uh, down in Ephesus and we would go north and then back down around and south to Laodicea. So interestingly enough, they're written in an order that a messenger would be delivering them in order from south west up to the north and then down to the southeast in kind of a, a circular pattern. Each of these letters contains some elements that we're going to see repeated over and over again in these seven letters or at least parts of these elements. And so it's really important to wrap your head around the fact that that these are the same types of letters written to individual churches addressing different issues inside each individual church. But we're going to see in every letter a number of things. Number one, we're going to see Christ introduce himself. And every introduction, for the most part, is going to leverage a little bit of the vision that John shared with us at the end of chapter one. If you remember, uh, we see uh, the Son of Man, or one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, golden sash, uh, hair and, and on his head was white as wool, eyes like fire, feet like bronze, a voice like cascading waters, seven stars in his right hand, sharp double-edged sword coming from his mouth, face shining like the sun at full strength. That vision that John had, Jesus is going to introduce himself to these seven churches using one of those aspects. And then he says this to each of the churches, for the most part, I know your works. In other words, I'm paying attention to what's going on in your church. I know what a, what a regular gathering looks like for you. I know what the relationship between people is like. I'm paying attention to how you relate to the culture around you. And then in nearly every church, he says this word for word, I have this against you. So usually he says something nice about them. I know your works. Hey, you guys like to dress up on a Sunday. You do a great job. And then he says something, I have this against you, but you have a bad attitude when you arrive. And so we need to work on that. And then he gives a specific call to obedience for every church. And for some of the churches, it is to repent and change something. For others of the churches, it's just simply, hang on, it's going to be okay. I'm coming back. And then finally, he ends up with a promise that says something about the eternal status of that church and the people within it and promises to believers in general. And then there is almost always a command that he who has ears to hear, let him listen. Now, this one we won't have on every slide. The person who has ears to hear it, let him listen. But I want to just do a quick experiment. Um, I want you to just take one or two hands, just depending upon how agile you are. And I want you to reach up and do this. 
right? And some of you are already looking at me like an idiot, but you get it, right? Do you have ears to hear? Uh, just, just acknowledge whether you do or not in your own heart. It's okay. Do you have ears to hear? So what should you do with each of these letters? Listen. And when God tells us to listen, he's not just like, hear these words and, and you know, nod and smile and it'll be okay. But when he, he says, listen, he, he is saying to us, take these words to heart and apply them in your life as they fit. Right? If the shoe fits, what are you supposed to do with it? Wear it. If the, the command fits, obey it. If the, the thing he has against this church fits us or our hearts, wear it and take it to heart and do something about it. And so we're going to go through these churches one by one. And a lot of times uh, we will take, and, and some of us have been through Revelation Bible studies where we'll spend a whole week on each church. And in fact, that was kind of my plan to get started. And my wife says, don't. We've all done all the churches. We know everything about Ephesus. We know, we know all these places, but we still need to, we, we want to remember what he has to say to these churches. So I'm not going to give you all the history and background like I normally would uh, if I were preaching through these letters. And in fact, I think there may be on the website, I think I've done these seven letters to the seven churches specifically at one point. But we're going to just kind of look at the concepts and look at these things and how they play out in the life of the church in that era and, and our lives today. Uh, so interesting, quick fact, Ephesus is actually, it's a church and it's been there for about 40 years. It's one of the earliest churches Paul establishes on his missionary journeys. And he comes back to that church over and over again. So we know a lot about Ephesus. Uh, Timothy had been pastor at Ephesus. We think John pastored the church at Ephesus. And so this church is like really strong. It's been there for a long time. It's probably the hub of Christianity in Asia. And so we, we look at this letter that's written. So Revelation chapter two, starting in verse one, we're going to read each of the letters and then go through it bit by bit. So here's what Jesus says to John, write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So this short letter to the, 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 the church in Ephesus gives us some things that we see about both Christ and about this church. First, Jesus says that he is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Scripture's already told us in chapter one, what are the seven stars? The, the angels of the churches, which could be the pastors, it could be a literal angel, could be the messengers that's being sent. So yes, we're not sure exactly what he means by the angels, but it's the angels of each church. Uh, the representative of each church is a star in the hand of Jesus. And each lampstand is the church itself. That's representative of each church. And so Jesus begins to introduce himself by saying, I'm right here in your midst. 
and I have, I have everything in my hand, and I'm right here with you. And, and this is supposed to be an introduction that is encouraging. One that says, I, I know you, I'm with you, I, I, I'm in control of what's going on, and so let me talk to you about your life. Let me talk to you about your spiritual life. And if we were to start with this, what he says that's encouraging to them, this church looks like a church I'd like to go to. I mean, this church is doing all the right stuff. I mean, it says they are doing good works. They're laboring. They're enduring in the faith. They don't like evil people. I'm, I'm in. I mean, I'm, yeah, I don't like evil people either. Yes. Uh, they, they test the, uh, the people who call themselves apostles or messengers who were sent with authority. Not necessarily the 12 apostles, but instead people who came and said, I'm a messenger for, for the church and I've been sent with the authority to teach you new things. And they go, hmm, let's compare that against scripture. And they, they've looked at, at people who've come and said, I have authority. And they've said, no, you're a liar. You're a false apostle. We reject you. So they are solid in doctrine. They're solid in practice. Uh, it's says they've persevered and endured hardships for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, they are standing up for the faith. This church sounds good. And it says they haven't grown weary. They also hate the teachings of these false teachers that Jesus says he hates. So all of us, if we just read that much, we would look at this church and go, this church has got it going on. Yeah, let's go. I'm, I mean, I'm ready to take the membership class and join. You know, I, I, I'll, I'll get baptized again if that's what it takes. I like this church. But Jesus says this, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Now we have this church that is faithful, this church that is protecting doctrine and doing good works but Jesus says to them, the issue is you don't love like you used to. <laughs> you don't bring me roses. Anyway, um, that, that we, we see Ephesians 1, 15 and 16. We can look at this letter that Paul writes to this very same church a number of years earlier. And he says this, this is why since I have heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints... I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. The church in Ephesus had a reputation in the time of Paul of not just being doctrinally sound in the faith, but also loving deeply the people around them and, and the people in the church and loving God. And so they had a reputation and had a start that was deeply rooted in a passion for Jesus Christ and one another. But by the time of Revelation... 30 to 40 years later, they have grown cold in their faith. They're faithful and they know good doctrine and they're doing good works, but they have no passion, no love that's right. Uh, just to get a little nerdy with you, and you guys know I like to do that. Imagine faith as three circles when it comes to how we live. There are three circles in which the Christian faith is, is to be expressed properly. One is orthopraxy or right actions. We should always have orthopraxy or right actions in our life. Good works, if you will, that are a, they flow out of our salvation and our relationship with God in Christ Jesus. We also want to have orthodoxy, which is right belief. When we talk about orthodoxy, we're not talking about a church that dates itself back to 1050 AD. We are talking about simply right beliefs. Where do we get our right beliefs from? 
Scripture. We, we, we go to Scripture for right... <laughs> Will's holding up his Bible. I didn't even see it back there. Hold up your Bible. You got to yell it, man. We go to the, the Bible for our right beliefs. And, 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 and those truths that have been passed down by the church... Um, the, the things that the church has decided on once and for all based upon scripture, we hold on to those things and, and, and we, we make sure they're an important part of our fellowship. And the Ephesian church, they had those two things right, but what they were missing was orthopathy. And you might go, what? You just made that word up. No, not completely. A little bit maybe. Most of us are worried, we're, we're familiar with the words sympathy and empathy. Right? We, we, we know what those mean. It means to feel along with, to feel alongside, to, to, to feel at the same time. So we're used to sympathy and empathy. Well, I want you to, to understand orthopathy or orthopathy. And that is right feelings or right love. Right affections. The Ephesian church had right works and right beliefs, but they did not have the right love. This is very easy to slip into. If you're not careful, if you're a person, a person who likes truth and you like facts and you like doctrine and you like the, to, 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 to pursue righteousness and chase after the good things of God and you get all in on those things, the good works and the good doctrine, but you forget to have a passion for your savior and your fellow believer, you're falling prey to the same issues that the Ephesian church falls prey to. And, and, and I have to say, this is probably one that right out of the gate slaps me between the eyes. I love facts. I love doctrine. I love to learn. I love to do good things. Uh, but sometimes I struggle with liking people. Uh, it starts with my own self. Like I look in the mirror and I, I don't even like that dude. How do I like anybody else? But, but you, you guys get how easy it can be for certain personalities to get completely wrapped up in truth but forget to care. And so the Ephesian church is being called out for that. You guys are doing so many things right, but you're doing it without any real love for one another or God. So what is it that the Ephesian church needs to do? Well, Jesus makes it very clear. He says, here's the command for you. I want you to remember how far you've fallen. Today, you might have come to church just to hear, to learn, to do, and you feel nothing. You haven't allowed yourself to love God like you did that day you got saved. You, you fail to love fellow believers. You fail to show any care or affection for them. You're all about the Bible study and the, the you know, helping the poor and the needy. But by golly, you won't smile when you come to church. There's no way you would actually sing out loud, right? Because not, not, not to make fun of, of where we can be in our different places in life, but just to say you, you got so hung up on the right way of doing and believing that you forgot to include your emotions again. You, you left those things aside and thought you were doing the right thing so you didn't have to love anyone or love God. And realize that really what, what is the, the greatest commandment? To love God with all that you are. What's the second one that's like unto it? Love your neighbor as yourself, right? You guys got it. Love is at the heart. Right loving is at the heart of a proper expression of the Christian faith. Both God and neighbor. So remember how you used to be. Remember what it felt like the day you got saved? 
Remember what it felt like early in your Christian life to experience the fellowship of believers and, and how you longed for it and craved it? Remember those experiences when, when you were just really learning how to sing out and, and worship God and, and, and you really felt him? Remember those things. Repent of your hardness of heart and your lack of love. What does it mean to repent? It means to confess that something is wrong and then change the way you're doing it. It, it doesn't mean just say, oh, I'm wrong. But confess that something's wrong and then change the way you do it. And Jesus says this to the church in Ephesus. Do this or I'm going to take your lampstand from you. Now, he doesn't mean take their salvation from them. But he says, I, I will see to it that your church is no longer a church. I'll see to it that your fellowship, this thing that is, should be so important to you, if you are going to neglect it and you are going to do the right thing but not love as you should, I'm going to take this privilege away from you. And you won't be a fellowship any longer. Now, th- this could, should really strike us and, and help us to understand that we want to have a balanced faith that where we are practicing rightly, we're doing right things, orthopraxy. Where we believe rightly based upon the teachings of God's word, orthodoxy. But we also love rightly. We love one another as we love ourselves. We love God with all that we are, orthopathy. That we have this balanced Christianity where we're in that sweet spot, right there in the cross. Living rightly, believing rightly, and loving rightly as Christ intended for us. Now, we're going to have days where we drift off and one becomes more important. Or we might have a conference where we focus over on one over the other. But we must always return back to that balanced middle in order to be the kind of believers and the kind of church that Jesus saved us to be. Now, he ends with this last one, the promise. For the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, uh, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So uh, this is a beautiful picture of eternal life for the person who remains faithful in celebrating what you've done right, responding to how you've been called out, repenting and doing, and you will conquer in this life and experience eternal life in the presence of God. We see this in in Genesis chapter 3. This is not a new concept that John comes up with, but it actually comes from Genesis chapter 3 and the Garden of Eden, the Garden in Eden, which is paradise. The Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him, man, away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. So we can imagine uh, there is somewhere on this world a hidden garden with a flaming, sordid, wielding angel that's keeping us from the tree of life. And why is that? Well, because if we had eaten of the tree of life in our fallen state, we would have been locked in as immortal beings, fallen and deserving punishment. And so God had to keep that from mankind so that salvation could be brought through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus And that everyone who walks in him and comes to meet God face to face will then be given the tree, the fruit from the tree of life and will live forevermore. And so we we have the the tree of life in both the Old Testament 
taken away from us to keep us from being locked in a state of eternal destruction. But once we're saved and redeemed fully and have walked with Jesus faithfully and conquered this world by living according to his standards and desires, we'll be given that fruit from the tree of life. So something to look forward to. Maybe you don't like fruit. I'm sure it'll taste like steak if that's what you want it to taste like, right? So just look forward to the faithful believer will be blessed with the tree of life in God's paradise. And it's just going to be this great thing. Hold on, be faithful, repent, do what you've done before. Come and love like you should. And the reward will be great. Then we move to the, the next city, Smyrna. Smyrna is, is right just, just, just a little bit north of Ephesus. And, and here's what scripture says to Smyrna, which is a, a church in a wealthy city. It was faithful to Rome. Smyrna has an imperial temple where they worshiped the emperor. And here's what Jesus says to that. Write to, the changel, write to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid by what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has, ears to, who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. So this letter to a church in a wealthy city that was very faithful to the Roman Empire and in which there was a place to worship the Roman emperor as though he were God, they are addressed by Christ. And he says that he is the one who uh, is, is the, the first and the last. And we remember that is a picture of he's present at creation. He's present at recreation and redemption. He encompasses and holds all of time in his hand. There is nothing outside of what he sees and knows and shepherds and tends. And so this Jesus, he's also victorious over death. The one who was dead and came to life. Look, you're worried about death. What does Jesus say to you? Been there, done that, came back to life. And so I've already been through what your biggest fear is. And so you don't need to be worried. And so he says to this church full of people who worship the emperor. And and we find out later Jews who actually are turning Christians in. He says, I know this about you. I know your affliction and your poverty. Some of us would say, well, Jesus, if you know, why haven't you done anything? I mean, we would, we would read something like this and, and we would compare it to modern television Christianity, which says to us, Jesus doesn't want any of these things in your life, right? If you believe hard enough or you send me enough money, you shouldn't experience these things. And Jesus is saying to a church in, a, in, a, in, a, in the first century, within the first 60 years of the, the life of the church, he's saying to them, I know your affliction and your poverty. I, I get where you're at. And he doesn't say, I'm going to make it all better. He says, I know and I understand it, but I also want you to understand something. You're rich. And when he talks about being rich, he's not saying, hey guys, I hid a pot of gold under your church. If you can find it, you'll all be wealthy. Or if you have enough faith, 
or if you give enough to pastor, whatever. No, he says, you are in affliction. You are impoverished, but you are rich. And so those of us who've been in Christianity any amount of time know that the riches of Christ are not of this world. They are stowed away for us in eternity. On the other side of death, we find the inheritance that is ours in Christ Jesus. And so though we are afflicted and impoverished today, we are rich. And so when he says affliction, he's not just talking about, I make fun of it, right? Somebody won't say Merry Christmas to you when you're in checkout. He is, that word means serious trouble. It, it means literally a crushing burden. Ever been stuck under something that you couldn't lift and you got to just hold it up so you don't die? I, every once in a while you work something like construction, you work, I'm sure Don, uh, other truck drivers, you guys have had something go just off enough where you think you might die. Others of us, you know, working on home repair, that light bulb just gets a little bit out of whack. And, you know, we think we're going to fall off the ladder and die. But that, that crushing burden, that inability to do anything, that's what he means by affliction. And poverty, he's not talking like you just had to skip a meal to make ends meet. Extreme poverty, nothing at all. Not no extra, but nothing at all. This church is being crushed by burdens and they have nothing at all. But Jesus says to them, you are rich. And he says to them, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews, but are not. They're actually a synagogue of Satan. They, they were struggling because there were Jews in that city who were not worshiping God faithfully, even as Jews, but instead were pursuing their own goods and riches and glory. Interesting in, uh, fact, early in the life of Christianity, the Roman Empire saw Christians as a sect or a subset of Judaism. And Judaism had a protected status in Rome. Jews were allowed, they were the only group of people allowed to worship freely without hindrance by outside groups. They were legally protected. And so while Christians were considered Jews, guess what happens for Christians? They're legally protected and allowed to worship a little more freely. But what happens is over time, the Jewish communities start to go, oh, Christians, they're not real Jews. Wait, nope, they're not like us. Go ahead and persecute them. And the, the Jews themselves became the persecutors of the Christians. And so not only did they lose their protected status legally, but they also began to be persecuted by the Jews in each city where there was a synagogue. So this, this group of Jews is persecuting the church. They're casting them out, calling them out, calling down hatred from the Roman Empire upon the Christians in town. And here's what Jesus says. Here is the command he gives. He says, don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Jesus, you're so encouraging. Thank you, Lord. Wow, that, that word of sunshine and, and glory and butterflies. Thank you for that. He says, don't be afraid of how bad it's going to get. Because it's going to get bad. And this is meant to be an encouragement. It's a call to obedience. Christians, he knows where we're at. He knew where this church was at. He knew what they were going through. He knew that they were being afflicted from all sides. And he says, I'm there with you. And don't be afraid. 
Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for 10 days. Now, that don't be afraid, it is stop being afraid right now, and don't be afraid in the future. And he, he says there's, there's stuff that's coming. We have an enemy, Satan, and he's going to throw some people into prison to test And this test, it's a negative experience meant to see if you really believe what you believe. And and we we should have in our mind the picture of Job. If you're familiar with the story of Job, Job is a righteous man. He uh, follows God faithfully. He even does go so far as when his kids get together and, and have a party, he goes and he makes sacrifices on their behalf just in case they did something against God, just in case they sinned. And so he lived this very careful, this very intentional life of righteousness to glorify God. And then the the story of Job is that Satan comes into God in the heavenly council. And he says to God, um, well, actually God says to him, have you considered my servant Job? Satan had been out looking for people to make accusations against. God says, have you looked at Job? And Satan goes, oh yeah, but you take such good care of him. Of course, he's going to stay faithful to you. And God tells Satan, that's fine. You can take whatever he has. Just don't, don't harm him. And Satan takes his children, all of his riches, uh, and, and it's just this, this complete state of broken down life Everything is gone for Job, save himself and his wife and the home they lived in. Satan goes back to God. God says, Have you, hey, what about that Job? And Satan goes, well, of course. I mean, you won't let me touch his life or his body. So of course he's going to worship you. He knows he's safe. And so God gives Satan permission to give Job a negative personal experience in order to see if he really believes what he says he believes. And, and Job ends up with boils. Just if, if you're not familiar with boils, just big raging acne all over his body is probably the best way to describe it. Huge pimples. And, and it's so bad, he's scraping himself with broken pottery to try and, and get rid of stuff and, and, and ease the itching. Dogs are licking at his wounds, right? It's, it's a terrible experience. His wife is telling him, listen, you're toast. Just curse God and die. Just, just get it over with. Clearly God hates you. Curse him and die. And, 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 and Job refuses. And, and what is the test? The test is, do you really believe what you say you believe? Do you really trust God? And the church in Smyrna and every church since then and us today, we should expect similar things. Jesus says to that church, they're going to experience being thrown into prison to test, you will experience affliction for 10 days. Now, was it 10 literal days? We don't know for sure. But what is 10 symbolic of, if you remember back to our numbers? A fullness, a completeness. In other words, Jesus could simply be saying, you're going to be experiencing this until it's over. (laughs) Yeah, duh. I like 10 days better, 10 literal days. Wouldn't that be great if the promise was, Christian, no affliction will last more than 10 days. Oh, hallelujah. Wouldn't that be great? But it seems that what what Jesus is telling the church is, this affliction will last until my purpose in it is complete. 
And the call of obedience says, don't be afraid. And then be faithful to the point of death. Oh my goodness. This is huge, isn't it? The call to be faithful to the point of death. Many of us, we don't, we don't take our Christian walk this seriously, do we? I mean, it would be a stretch, and, and I, don't, I don't want anybody to feel like I'm, I'm attacking, but it would be a stretch if, if God said to us, be faithful to the point of attending Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, because that's what I want you to do. We'd be like, oh, but Jesus, you don't understand. I take a nap on Sunday afternoons, and if, if there was a church service that started too early, I wouldn't get my full nap in. Oh, I'm so afflicted, Jesus. Hyperbole, right? I'm stretching it out. I'm exaggerating. But, but really, to the point of death, Jesus is calling this church. And, and why is, that in, or why is death, death something that's insignificant? Well, he's already told us. Who is he? The one that was dead and is now alive again. So if you are faithful to the point of death, he's the beginning and the end. He knows it all. He's already been there and done that and come back to life. You're faithful to the point of death. What do you have to fear? Nothing. Because he is the master of death. And so if you are faithful to the point of death, he says, I will give you the crown of life. Now that crown of life, James mentions it, mentions it in chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the one who endures trials. There it is again. Trials, tribulation, affliction. Blessed is the one who endures trials because when he has stood the test, you made it through all 10 days, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Now, what is the crown of life? Is it really this crown you're going to get? Well, scripture talks about a number of crowns that Christians will receive in eternal reward, but they're symbolic of the riches of the inheritance that is to come. What is the crown of life? It is eternal life. Brought back to eternal life like our Savior before us. If it happened to Jesus, this resurrection, it will happen for us. And then whoever has ears to hear and whoever conquers, whoever overcomes, will never be harmed by the second death. He doesn't say, won't, might not be harmed or could sort of be harmed, but then you'll get better. No, the, the word there is actually no, not ever be harmed. You will know not ever be harmed by the second death, which is eternal judgment, the lake of fire we find out later in Revelation. And so death holds no power over those who are following after Christ Jesus. Even the church in Smyrna, they are afflicted, they are without anything, and yet they are rich because they have the promise that the one who is and was and will be forevermore, he who died and was victorious over death, he was, is, is, is shepherding their lives and he will rescue them from death and they will not be harmed by the second death, but instead will be raised to life again with him forevermore. And if it's true for them... Who else is it true for? Us. And so as we read this, we look and we should go, affliction and poverty stink, and I'd like to be out of them and be done with these things. But guess what happens when it's all over? I live forevermore. 
And who do I, who's telling me that? Who's making me that promise? The one who rose from the dead. He says to me, be faithful to the point of death, but death has no power over you. That's, what's the worst they can do to us? Kill us. What does death result in? Life forevermore. Now, I get it. I'm not scared of death. I'm scared of the process of getting there, right? I don't like pain. Anybody? Don't admit that. Um, I don't like pain. I don't like struggle. I don't like being hungry. Like four hours, that's tops, right? I don't like being hungry. But all of those things, if I have to suffer them, if you have to suffer them, are of no account, even death itself is conquered by Jesus Christ. I was supposed to get four churches today. I knew that was a stretch. So let's look at the application for these two churches, Ephesus and Smyrna. Because we'd be here until one or two in the afternoon if I kept going. (laughs) Um, I'd need a, a throat lozenge. Revelation, these letters, they're meant to be a blessing for us. And so as we read them, I hope that you can read this and, and you can be blessed today. That you can read it and you can see for yourself maybe a challenge. We've only gotten through two of seven letters. And I guarantee it's going to get even more personal as we go. For us as a church, for us individually as believers. Number one, though, that first act of application we can make is like the church in Ephesus. If we are in a place where our faith has become dry and formulaic, and we are really solid when it comes to what we believe, and maybe even we're doing good works, but we have no love, and we're doing things out of duty, return to your first love. And if you've never felt love for Jesus or his people, maybe you need to decide and understand, am I even part of the church? genuinely by salvation or am I just attending? You can attend for a long time and and be part of it, but never belong to it because you've never received Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. So I encourage you, if you're just here and you like the facts, but you don't feel a thing, look and decide, did I ever really make that choice to follow after Jesus, to confess my sins, to receive his grace and his love? and then begin to walk in it? Or am I just going through the motions? And then others of us, we know we're saved, but it's become dry and we're going through the motions. Return to your first love. Second, church in Smyrna. Don't be afraid of this life. Don't be afraid of the persecution. Don't be afraid of the affliction. Don't be afraid of the hunger. Now, none of us long for it. None of us want it. Do not seek it out. Don't be like, oh, I'm going to be more spiritual than others. I'm going to seek out affliction. No, that's silly. But when it comes into your life, don't be afraid. First of all, you've got a church that should be, if we're loving you rightly, stepping in and helping fill the gaps. But secondly, even if you die in Christ, you are alive forever. 
And so there is nothing to actually be afraid of. Don't be afraid. Instead, choose to be faithful. Today, we don't have a closing song because it would be me. And I don't like having to do that. It's hard to make the transition back. But what we have is just a couple of moments. I want you to think about these two challenges, these two things. Are you in a place where you believe and do right, but you don't feel? Are you in a place where where things are going sideways and you're so afraid and you wonder if God will and you need to say, I know he will, and so I'm going to be faithful? Are you in one of those two places today? And if that's the case, I just want you to take a moment as we pause quietly and bow our heads in prayer to, to talk to your Jesus about it, about rekindling the love that was what you felt at first and, and how you want to, to feel that again and you want to be part and you want to, you want to love others like you know you, you are made for. You want to love him like you know you're made for. Are you in that circumstance and you need to just trust his hand and commit to him that, that poverty or that affliction or that trouble and trust that the timing's going to work out just right and that even if you do die, you'll live forevermore. And so it's worth being faithful. How will you respond? And then today, one last challenge, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you see this picture of him and you read these truths and it, it, it only instills fear instead of love and hope, Maybe you need to talk to somebody this morning about being made one with Jesus, being saved, and coming to be in relationship with him and his people through trusting in him for salvation. I'm not sure where you're at. As we ponder today, as we spend a couple of silent moments, would you think about how do these letters apply to you? Let him who has ears hear and listen and do what the Spirit says. Let's spend a couple of moments in listening. Our Lord Jesus, we know you hold us in your hand. You are in our midst even now. You are not far away and distant. You are right here with us. We're so thankful for that. We know that when you say to us in your word that you know us, we can be confident first that you lived this life in the flesh and you know what it is to be human, but you also know us personally and intimately. You are the first and the last. You are the one who was dead and yet rose again. So as we see you, as we have a a vision of, of your glory, May we respond to your call to return and to love once again. 
May we respond to your command and encouragement to not be afraid, but to, to be faithful and to trust. For we know that you are above all and you are in control and, and you are good and gracious. And even if you allow into our life struggling today that the promise of forever and real eternal life is always right around the corner for us all. We thank you that we don't need to be afraid of death because you have overcome. That we can love genuinely because you have loved us when we didn't deserve it. This morning, as we finish our time together, we, your church, help us to hear what you've said and to obey. May we continue to see you as you are and hear the words you have for us in these coming weeks. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine down on you this week. May you know the fullness of his goodness and respond by loving him with all that you are and loving your neighbor as yourself and casting aside the fear that comes so easily upon us in this world. God bless you all. We'll see you guys next week.